Welcome to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce with Cindy Stibbard. Cindy is ready to have those candid and unfiltered conversations so you know how to move forward in your marriage. You'll hear inspiring and insightful discussions surrounding this taboo subject to help you feel confident in your decision. Now, here's your host, Cindy Stibbard. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Divorce Redefined, Changing the Experience of Divorce. I'm your host, Cindy Stibbard. If this is your first time tuning in with us, I am so glad you're here. On this show every week, if you haven't joined us before, we dig deep into many topics that we feel uncomfortable about, but a topic one topic in particular that is highly stigmatized in our society and a topic that can trigger even those of us who have gone through it and are well on the other side. And that is the topic of divorce. If you've been following me for a while and listening to this podcast, you already know how truly passionate I am about changing the experience of divorce, because I believe that changing this experience is a movement And no, you don't have to be going through divorce yourself to be supportive of this movement, but I would bet that you know someone who has, who is, or who will go through divorce or has least been impacted by it in some way, and this show is for all of them. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible, and here are a couple ways that you can help us get this podcast in front of those who need it. First... If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Secondly, talk about us. Talk about us on social media if you're comfortable with that. And if you like something you hear, tell your friends and share it. That is a huge support for us. Share this with anyone you know who's going through tough times, whether it be divorce, struggles in their marriage or relationship, parenting challenges. And even those who are single and trying to redefine themselves in the world after divorce, because we talk about all of that here. And the third thing I'd like you to do is just show up, show up and be here and take it all in, become informed, educated, and empowered to do your relationships and divorce in a better way. I really want you to not just be a passive listener here, but to take a little snippet from each episode that can either help you in your situation or help someone you know in theirs. I am so proud of the show that we put together for you every week and the lineup of strong, courageous, bold, and daring like-minded individuals who also want to lead the charge in changing the experience of divorce with me. I am so excited for the work that we're doing in this space and in the theme of changing the experience of divorce, and this podcast is a testament to that. So today, we're going to dive deep into another one of my favorite topics besides divorce, and that's relationships. My guest today is Dr. Diane Strachowski, most famously known as Dr. Diane, or on Instagram, at Back to Love Doc. Dr. Diane is a licensed psychologist, a researcher with more than 20 years of clinical experience, and she has quite a resume of where she has studied and practiced and really built up herself as a professional that she is today. She's pursued her undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Illinois. 
Then she went on to complete her master's degree in counseling from Santa Clara University. During this time, she began her research career working at Stanford's behavioral medicine program. After that, she felt so inspired that she continued her postgraduate learning and pursued her doctorate at the University of San Francisco. There, she kept building up her network, her experience, her own private practice. And today, she's primarily a cognitive behavioral therapist who specializes in treatment of mood disorders. She works with individuals, couples, and families. And she's also a relationship expert who helps individuals and couples improve their communication skills, identify their attachment styles, and discover love again. So holy moly, I've got one seriously amazing guest for you today that I'm so excited that you're here. Welcome, Dr. Diane. Thank you, Cindy. So nice to be here. That's amazing. I feel so, so honored. I, I remember um, when I first got connected with you back in the clubhouse days. Yes. <laughs> and I felt this whole like celebrity crush on you. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're connecting. And she's this huge psychologist. And, and everything that you said about relationships was just so spot on. And I think that everything that you share too is so powerful. And those of you who are listening right now, you do need to go over to um, her Instagram because your reels are unbelievable. And I love how you get the message across in such a light, fun way. And even bringing your husband in. <laughs> I know he's a champ. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so yes, thank you for being here. And I want to talk, we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about attachment styles and what you call love styles and even the importance of couples therapy. Mm -hmm. But before we get started, tell us a little bit about your story and how you got started on this path of being a psychologist in this. Way. Oh my gosh, Cindy, I, my <laughs> personal story. Okay. Um, I, 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 I can make it short. Um, the reality is that I got married later in life, but had been engaged and the truth is, if I married my fiance, I'm sure I would have been divorced. I'm sure of it. Mm -hmm. If I look back to it, I was young. Um, I moved out actually from Chicago, which is where I was born and raised, to California because of this guy that I met in college. And um, if I look back on it now, I had no idea that I had an anxious attachment style mm -hmm. and that he was pretty avoidant. And I found him you know, cheating. I, I found him literally with another woman. And that became, you know, pretty life altering. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, was in my own studies and struggling in my own dating relationship. But my story, Cindy, is that I went to seven different therapists, seven. Oh. After this breakup and then searching, I went to Christian therapists, I went to, you know, cognitive behavioral therapists, and not a single person ever said to me, Diane, you have an anxious attachment style. And if I had known that one piece of advice, that one nugget, and that's why I built my platform on this, it would have informed pretty much everything. <laughs> and now that I know about attachment theory and have studied it, and help couples manage their attachment styles, it is just game changing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people high level know what it is, but then the real reality is what is the science behind it? And then how do we change our attachment style? Because 
it is something, it's not genetic or biological, but it is something we learn in our primary relationships with our parents. And then all of our relationships after that mimic our style. And I, as a researcher at Stanford, I really do like to give people empirically based things and decided to look deeper into attachment styles because I didn't think that the current data that said that half the population is secure was correct. So I wanted to study it myself. And that's how I try to help people get back to love um, because I want to help them figure it out. And when you talk about divorce, so much of it is figuring out what went wrong. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it is true. Like, you know, I think we don't know and you, you're nailing it on the head when you th- say that, you know, we don't know what our attachment style is. And I think that that is such a foundation of how we build our own relationships. And I mean, in my opinion, I always say to people that everything, you know, about relationships happens at home and, everything. So mm-hmm. and it happens with those primary caregiving relationships That's right away. So when you're going through your, you know, relationships from an early age and then marriage, you don't necessarily know what you are. So how do you know what, what you are in terms of attachment style and how does someone figure that out? Well, that's the reason, Cindy, why I created my own quiz, um, because I call I call it a love style. And there's your attachment style. But in my clinical practice, I noticed something different, too, when I have a subscale for communication. So there are four primary attachment styles. I'll just say what they are. They're secure functioning, which is what you want to be. This is if you have parents who are attentive and responsive. So it's not just did my parents love me, but when I cried, when I was cold or hungry or scared, and I cried, did you come? And did you come consistently? And did I understand the world through that lens? Did Mm -hmm. I understand that people were unconditionally there for me and cared about me? Because children have a hard time interpreting things. And if you have any parents on your podcast, like if your baby's crying, it really helps to say, oh, honey, you're crying because you must be cold. Here's a blanket. The blanket solves the cold. Because Mm -hmm. otherwise, a baby doesn't understand and they're afraid. They're just crying because they're cold. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the because their brains aren't fully developed, they don't have the cognition between like, why I'm cold. And as Mm -hmm. a parent, when you explain it to them, it helps them understand to not be afraid. Right. So that's secure functioning. And that's great. So the literature has said that 50% of the population is secure. And I don't know about you, Cindy, but I said, hell no. There's just no way. (laughs) I know. No way. So I, I mean, I went to conferences, I asked everyone in the field, but the problem is the original data and Dr. John Bowlby was the one who created attachment theory. He was a psychiatrist, psychologist. This happened back in the 1950s. So it's been around forever, but the study, the original study done to measure attachment styles is called the strange situation. It was a laboratory setting. It was done with children. Mm -hmm. So Children can look secure functioning in certain situations, but now what if something also happens to you early life beyond age two, because they're studying two-year-olds, 
that you can become insecure. And we know that children get bullied at school. Children have conflicts with other people besides their parents and be, can become insecure. So I understand that the rates are much higher. So I created my quiz, two mm -hmm. components, again, the attachment and the expressiveness I call either high or low expressive. That breaks down to seven different types. Okay. So of the four types, they're secure. Then there's anxious attachment, mm -hmm. which is someone whose parents were inconsistent. Okay. So when I cried, my parents were there for me, sometimes not others. Mm -hmm. I never felt like I could breathe, like I could relax into the relationship because you were inconsistent. And it, it's not, it could be for a hundred different reasons. My parents had multiple children. Um, my parents were alcoholics. My parents were working three jobs. Whatever reason, though, the child never felt completely settled in that relationship. Mm -hmm. So as an anxious adult now, you're an overthinker, you're a people pleaser, you do too much, you um, are constantly trying to get close, get feedback, um, your needs are, you know, do you see me, do you get me, do you hear me? So there's a whole confluence of symptoms, essentially, that you have anxious symptoms, and I call you nervous because your nervous system, you're wired that way. Right. Okay. And does that, does that also relate to, let's say, if you're in conflict with other, other siblings who are also vying for attention? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I'm the perfect example. I call myself like the nervous Nora, which is my character, because I took the attachment styles and I want to destigmatize it. So to call mm -hmm. oneself anxious ambivalent sounds I'm not ambivalent. I want love. Like yeah. I don't I'm not ambivalent at all. And am I anxious? No, my nervous system is wired to be sensitive and now I have to know that and figure that out. So that was me. And yes, I had four siblings. My parents were like Polish immigrants anxious about the world in general. You learn that. You do. And if your parents are anxious yeah, you're going to, there's going to be, you're going to mirror that because we have mirror neurons and you're going to pick that up. So that's the second type. The most common is nervous. Nervous Nora, nervous Nick, who I call them. Then there's um, the anxious avoidant type, which they oftentimes pair together, interesting enough. And the avoidant person is more uh, in a home where there wasn't a lot of love at all, like a right. coldness, kind of like we're not going to talk about feelings. Just get it done. Everybody goes off and does in their own silo. And so that person kind of auto-regulates. They don't like co-regulate with someone else. And oftentimes people are divorced from these people because they're not great warm partners. Yes. They're really emotionally avoidant and devoid, aren't they? Exactly. You know? yeah. and, 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 it's, and in many ways, I'm, I see them as a loving avoidant because they can be stigmatized too as like they're intentionally doing that, they're really just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And they learned it as a survival mechanism is to be self-sufficient, take care of myself, but they don't know how to be vulnerable. They don't know how to open up. And so it's like teaching them the color blue. I mean, they just don't know it. Right. And, and again, no stigma. It's really just what they learned. So that's the third type. And then the fourth type is the least common, thank goodness, which is the fearful avoidant. I call them confused. And that person really did suffer abuse, neglect, mm -hmm. trauma. Thank goodness that's like 8% of the population. It's not very common, but that person's going to have a lot of triggers. It's going to be difficult in relationships and they're, they feel trapped a lot. 
Right. And then when you say abuse, like it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, physical and or sexual abuse, right? I mean, this could be emotional abuse, exactly. verbal so be, abuse. Yeah. But it's usually on the, on the more severe spectrum. Okay. okay. So, um, because you can, you can have an anxious attachment style with, let's say an alcoholic parent who was difficult while they were drunk. And that's not necessarily to the level. Right. So in psychotherapy, we think of um, what's called like big T trauma, like significant. I've witnessed murder. I was raped. Those are significant things versus small T, which is like the, the trauma of relational trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we categorize them slightly differently, but yes, it could be many different forms of, of abuse. So the point is just figure out who you are because everyone's going to have different issues. The nervous person is going to want to connect very quickly. The nervous person is going, and depending on whether you're high or low expressive, if I'm a high expressive nervous type, I want to talk it out. I'm not going to bed angry. We are Mm -hmm. going to go through this fight, damn it, until we figure it out. If I'm a low expressive, I might look more avoidant because I don't want to talk about it, but I'm still anxious underneath versus an avoidant person would, you know, can be very dismissive. They can completely shut down. They can just turn their back and leave. Right. Because they are flooded. And now you can see the combination if I'm a nervous type with what I call the independent type right? One person, now you've got this dynamic where one person wants more and they're pushing their partner away. And you can see right there that we're going to have conflict because they have competing needs, essentially. The avoidant person, or I call independent, needs space, distance, time, respect, because that's what they learned in their family. And the anxious person is looking for validation, reassurance. So they're competing, bumping heads for what they need. You, I feel like you're describing my marriage. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you Which know, like yeah. most couples that come for therapy. I mean, this is my work every day. This is what I do. So that's the most common pairing. And then the point is figure out how anxious one is, how avoidant one is, and where's the wiggle room? Mm-hmm. How do you educate people about understanding who their partner is? So you don't take it so personally. So you don't say, calm down. You're overreacting. You're yes. too anxious. You're too sensitive, right? Instead, to say, well, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And there's like such a difference in how you approach the person. And I say, you really have to just think of them as they're just like a baby. Like they learned this from somewhere, from their parents. They're not malicious. They're not trying to hurt you. But people don't get that because the problem with all of this, Cindy, is that we use ourselves as our own reference point, right? Yes, yes. And if I'm the nervous person, then I say, do unto others the way I would do. And I perceive <laughs> myself as warm and sensitive and caring. And so when someone's not that, I feel very hurt, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And it, it is so true that we do all have our different attachment styles and we all like to think, Oh no, I, I was raised fine. I mean, I am, I'm pretty secure and I did your quiz and I, I, I am totally a nervous Nora. Okay. Hey, <laughs> high five. Oh, and I'm like, yeah, I kind of know this about myself, but yeah. I didn't know any of this when I was married. And then you do all this learning afterwards and you right. think, 
what happened? What happened? Like, what did I do wrong? I mean, I did leave my marriage. And so I, I took a deep dive into myself to be like, I'm not going down that path again. I need to find someone who's different. Really what I'm learning is I also need to know what I need to do differently about myself and learning about my own attachment style and how they interact with other kinds of attachment styles has been like this crazy epiphany. And it's so much helped me in my new relationship because now we both know what attachment styles we have and know how to, like you said, when one becomes flooded and wants to shut down and avoid instead lean in and turn in and say, you know, what is it that you need here? I want to back away. This is overwhelming to me. And I feel like I'm triggered and I want to retreat, but I know you need me to sit here and, and talk this out. Even saying that, Oh my Literally God, changes everything. Absolutely, Cindy. It's the difference between being, again, dismissive versus being emotionally available. Yes. And if I can teach couples how to do that, then, then I can save marriages. Um, but that's exactly right. And once you get attachment styles, it's like you can't unsee it. <laughs> and then the question and, and or people on their journey, right, because this is all a journey, and I can say that I'm a secure person now. I'm happily married. My husband and I have worked through a lot of this. But the one thing about attachment styles and that I want to impress is that you're not walking around in your attachment style all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I say to people, and everybody loves this quote, we're all like tea bags. We're like tea. You don't know who someone is until you put them in hot water. Oh, yes. That okay. isn't that true. Right. You don't know their flavor. And if anybody is dating, this is the key. Everyone shows up looking good. Okay. We all think, oh, I'm secure. I'm cool. Because mm -hmm. we are. Like with mm -hmm. our friends and with our family, I'm cool. I'm easygoing. But then with a partner, that's going to pull on my old emotional needs. And if I don't get my needs met and it comes out during stress, right? So that's back to the baby. Like when the baby was stressed, when the baby needed something. So when a baby's happy and they're cooing and playing and everything's great, that's fine. But it's during those moments where you're crying and nobody's coming, you need something, you're hungry, you're cold and nobody's coming that that feels like forever and those unmet needs show up during stress. So you should never marry someone before you've seen them in a stressful situation. Oh my gosh, you're so right. I literally was doing a creating content this morning about the fact that, you know, I see so many relationships, especially after divorce, they make big decisions around year two, right? Oh, everything has been so great. I mean, of course it should be. It's the honeymoon phase. And if it's not great in the first two years, then get out. Exactly. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. But, you know, you feel like this is it. This person's the one. This one's so different than my previous spouse or, or partner. Yet nothing really major has happened exactly. for those things to be triggered. And then you move in together or you blend families or you decide to have kids. And all of a sudden, like, the shoe drops and you're like, holy crap, what is going on? What happened? So that's the key. Um, because in all the couples I work with, it's not back to like, it's not the 80%, it's the 20% of the time when things are tough, that that's when you're going to see people show up in their more primitive way. Mm -hmm. And the question then is, how do you manage those things? And ideally, as a couple, and if you 
see there's long-term longevity, then you want to start talking about them. So during stress, I mean, these are great questions in dating. During stress, what do you look like? What would yeah. you need from me? And that question in itself is hard to answer if you haven't done any deep work on yourself. You, you know, that's know. almost a great question to ask dating because that will be the whole light bulb of, oh, how much work have you done on yourself to move into this next relationship? Oh, Cindy, we, we end up wasting a lot of time with the wrong questions. Like, tell me about your ex. I'm like, that relationship didn't work. I don't know how much information you'll get. <laughs> I mean, of course you'll get some. But then the tricky thing is that in dating, A, we filter that. And you'll say, well, tell me about your ex. And then you'll say, well, my ex was really needy. And then you'll say, oh, shoot, then I can't be needy with you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so now you'll start molding yourself already and hiding yourself. And if you feel some shame, like I have an anxious attachment style, I can't show you that, then I'm going to be inauthentic right from the right. beginning. And I'm going to pretend that I'm not nervous, nor I'm going to pretend I'm independent, Isabel, I'm cool, I have no needs, and I'm going to ask for nothing. And I'm like, this is a recipe for disaster, meaning you need to just say, you know, I'm a high touch, high need person. And during stress, I need you to be there for me. I need mm -hmm. you to check in. Um, how do you feel about that? Yes. And that takes a whole level of self-awareness and being able to feel comfortable being vulnerable to let your needs be known, which I think a lot of First of all, a lot of individuals don't know themselves enough to be exactly. able to vocalize their needs. Right. And in new relationships, you're like, we don't want to turn this person off. But at the same time, you know, if you're kind of at that place where you'd like a relationship or not, how much time do you got? <laughs> Are you willing to waste the next couple of years really struggling to figure this out? Or do you want to really know where you're at and how you're going to be received pretty quickly on? So, you know, oh, yeah, nobody has time. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. I think that it's, it's a, it's a lot to process and get through. And I want to get, we're going to take a quick break here, but I want to get into more of that after the break about how you're known as the loved doctor and what you, you know, think about couples therapy and, and, uh, how people go about tips about how to start that. So we will return right after this break. All of us know that it is next to impossible to make rational, logical, and even smart decisions from a place of fear. Most times, if we are in a place of fear and uncertainty, we won't make a decision at all. Cindy Stibbard, founder of Divorce Redefined, professional divorce and decision coaching, supports many individuals and couples at this stage who are unhappy and unfulfilled, who are either currently in the process of divorce or just only contemplating the idea of separation. Does this sound like you? If it does, you are not alone. Text DIVORCE to 602-200-6446 to book your free call. Those who choose to work with Cindy are wise and brave enough to realize that they need to know more before they're able to make such a big life decision. Working with a divorce and decision coach at these stages is the smartest investment you could make for yourself and your family. And it will almost always set you up for a better outcome, whether you choose the path of divorce or not. There have even been many individuals and couples who have decided to give their marriage another shot after working with Cindy. Because what she offers at Divorce Redefined is different. You don't have to only be getting a divorce to benefit from her professional guidance. Cindy offers a unique element in addition to her popular divorce services called Decision Coaching. Decision coaching is a type of guided support that is meant to help couples get out of that indecision purgatory. 
Modeled after her training at the Doherty Relationship Institute, Cindy Stibbard's decision coaching approach is specifically designed to do just that, help couples come to a decision, whether to take one more shot at reconciliation or whether it's better to prepare for divorce. Regardless of the direction taken, couples on the brink finally find the clarity and confidence to know whatever they decide, it is what's best for their family. As a divorce and decision coach and certified divorce specialist, Sydney Stibbard is an advocate of healthy relationships. Whether a couple chooses to separate or try to stay together, she provides new insights, education, guidance, emotional support, and understanding of the many possible options for both individuals and couples who are in the process of uncoupling. At the end of the day, as Maya Angelou once said, when we know better, we do better. This is exactly the focus and purpose of working with Cindy. Are you considering separation or currently in the process of divorce and feeling overwhelmed, afraid, and confused about what this means for your future and that of your children? Do you want to do this right and make choices without regret? If you still aren't sure, ask yourself this. If I'm still in this exact place six months to a year from now, am I going to be okay with that? If your answer is no, Cindy is ready for you. Book a free confidential discovery call with Cindy at Divorce Redefined today. Text DIVORCE to 604-200-6446. That's text DIVORCE to 604-200-6446 to book your free discovery call today. You don't have to do this alone. All of us know that it is next to impossible to make rational, logical, and even smart decisions from a place of fear. Most times, if we are in a place of fear and uncertainty, we won't make a decision at all. Cindy supports many individuals and couples at this stage who have been unhappy and unfulfilled, who are either currently in the process of divorce or just only contemplating the idea of separation. Cindy's clients are wise and brave enough to realize that they need to know more before they are able to make such a big life decision. Working with a divorce coach at these stages is the smartest investment you could make for yourself and your family and it will almost always set you up for a better outcome, whether you choose the path of divorce or not. There have been many individuals and couples who have decided to give their marriage another shot after working with Cindy. As a divorce coach, certified divorce specialist, and qualified discernment counselor, Cindy is an advocate of healthy relationships, whether a couple chooses to separate or try to stay together. She provides new insights, education, guidance, emotional support, and understanding of the many possible options for both individuals and couples who are on the brink of separation. At the end of the day, as Maya Angelou once said, when we know better, we do better. This is exactly the focus and purpose of working with Cindy. Are you considering separation or currently in the process of divorce and feeling overwhelmed, afraid, and confused about what this means for your future and that of your children? Do you want to make the right decision without regrets? Why keep waiting? Book a free confidential discovery call with Cindy today. Text DIVORCE to 604-200-6446 or email info at divorceredefined.ca. You are listening to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce with Cindy Stibbard. If you have a question for Cindy or her guests, join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to the show. Here is Cindy Stibbard. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to Divorce Redefined. Today, I am joined by my special guest, Dr. Diane, also known as the Love Doctor. She is a cognitive behavioral therapist who specializes 
in mood disorders, as well as individuals, couples, families, and is a relationship expert. So just before the break, we were talking about the four different attachment styles and how your communication style also has an effect on that. And she calls them your love style. So let's go back into that because I feel like we were just talking about how knowing yourself and knowing your love style and your attachment style is so big. So you work with a lot of people, individuals who help bring them back to love. You know, you're known as is, can she really help me find love again? And the answer is yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> and how is that work for, for you working with individuals in that way? Where do they start when they come to you and where well, do they get? Cindy, I've been doing this for 20 plus years. Um, I found again, relationship therapy, interesting because I I was always interested in relationships. But in the last few years, I've really perfected, excuse me, this, uh, a four-step treatment model that I have. And again, I want this to be scientific. I'm not, you know, using crystals or tarot cards or anything. And I, my four-step model, and I can tell people what that is. One, is you have to figure out how to calm your nervous system. So the way that our brain is developed is the same way you need to heal. So we're talking about attachment wounds, essentially, or attachment issues that you have as a result of having a parent who was inconsistent, who didn't meet your needs, and now those needs are going to show up in your relationships. But you have to then, once you know your style, you have to figure out what needs to be healed. And you don't have to be perfect to find love mm-hmm. because people will wait. I, I'm going to heal myself and everybody's on a self-healing journey, etc. But you do need to do these four things. One, you need to calm your nervous system. You need tools, techniques, tips. It's called polyvagal theory. Uh, Stephen Porges talks about this is the fight or flight response. Right. Right. When you're, uh, you're sympathetic arousal system is in that fight or flight mode, you can, you know, visibly feel your anxiety, right? Your heart is racing, uh, your breathing, it becomes more shallow. You need to counteract that. So you need those skills specifically to calming your body down because your emotion regulation center, which is like your hindbrain is the first thing that gets developed. And as babies, 80% of their brain is developed in the first two years, and it's that emotion center. Okay, that's step one. Step two is you need a new story towards love because you have an old story. Your old narrative, your cognitive is, is my parents weren't there for me. My husband wasn't there for me. Um, Love is hard to find. There's no good people left. You've got all of these stories about love that leave you with no room for like a positive future. Right. I mean, it's it's all kind of negative about being hurt, being disappointed. So you need to talk to your inner child, give yourself what you didn't get and also find new ways to meet those needs. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's two. Step three is the cognitive piece, because we have thoughts that are not true. As an anxious person, I'm saying, oh, he hasn't gotten back to me. He's breaking up with me right? Oh, there we go again. The next shoe's going to drop. Oh, he's going to reject me. Well, that's just a thought. That's not true. And then no sooner Mm. do you hear back from them, you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess, I guess, I guess he wasn't, right? Yeah. yeah, And so we need to cognitively look at our thoughts because during states of depression and anxiety, we can create false narratives and we need to counter that with fact. 
What is the evidence that the thought is true? So specifically, I help people work through those steps to be more rational, mm-hmm. okay? Because even for Nervous Nora, my anxious person, I said, you know, I hate this phrase, trust your gut. I'm like, your gut is filled with gas. Do not <laughs> trust it, okay? You need to trust logic. You need to trust science. You need to trust the facts, not what you think is happening because you could be wrong. Because you're hyper aroused and you're picking up on cues that may not be accurate, actually. Right. And especially if you're in that heightened state, like exactly. you're making up all sorts of things at that right. point. And then step four is kind of my unique twist on all of this, which is actually to act, to take action with very clear, with confidence. So you have to, because if you can have all the great thoughts in the world, your nervous system is calm, but you can't take action. And even secure functioning people can sit around waiting for love to happen. Mm-hmm. Love should find me. It should be organic. It should be easy. Well, if you're over 20, <laughs> you're mm. going to have to put some effort in. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I think that that search for love is very almost desperate. And I think especially, I mean, that's one thing that people stay in relationships for Ab- too long out of fear. Yep. Yeah, or marriages when they're like, I don't want to be alone. I'm going to be yeah. alone. And it's almost become your relationship has almost become so habitual that the fear of being by yourself is, is paralyzing. You know, I will be living by myself because our world, of course, our world is coupled off. It's uncomfortable. It's scary to be the single person or the only one without a partner at a party, you know? No. And, and what will happen, um, Cindy, because I also follow reality dating shows, et cetera. And what will happen is you'll see like, oh, the pretty girl gets dumped and you think, well, if she can't get somebody, well, then I certainly can't. And so you'll, you'll, or you'll hear somebody else's story of being catfished or gaslit or, or whatever that is. And you'll think this happens to everyone. And so you don't even put yourself out there because you've had a hurt, you've had a divorce, and you think that this is going to happen again. And you need to heal that mm-hmm. because the whole point about uh, attachment styles, which is what I love about the theory, I'll, I'll go to the positive now, is that in relationships, we are wounded, but we're also healed. Mm-hmm. And so I really can't do that on my own. I can, I can self-heal, I can self-soothe, I can work on my nervous system, but in order for me to actually really heal that wound, I need corrective experiences that tell me something different. Right. So if I've had hundreds of thousands of negative experiences, I need hundreds of thousands of corrective experiences, so it takes a long time to be in a good relationship to really heal that. Yes. It is so true. And your, your partner is a, is a mirror sometimes of your weakest areas of yourself, right? They really challenge those areas to bring out, but they can also be such supporters to you on your healing journey. Even if the two of you are healing together, which often happens in a post-divorce situation, right? Well, and that's all relationships too. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very rare. Well, I don't see them obviously in couples therapy because happy couples don't come and say, hey, just (laughs) check it in, right? I mean, they they come in when they're in crises, right? And and that's very hard. And so my work is to figure out what the crises is, what are the competing needs, how to understand each other's needs and how to then respond emotionally in a different way. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I really do think that couples should go to therapy and learn about each other, even if there's nothing wrong in your relationship, you know, and I think that they wait too long. I waited 
way too long because apparently it was supposed to be me and my problems that I had to go fix, which is partly true. You know, I had to really work on me because I didn't understand me at the same time. But when there's that resistance of one, you know, and you're in a couple situation and one partner is like, oh, well, I don't need therapy. You're the one that needs therapy and we're fine. Or you are fine for so long until you've passed that two-year honeymoon phase. Now you're living together. Now you're committed and now things aren't going well. Now you think you need couples therapy. And now you think you're failing at your relationship because that stigma of, oh, you're going to couples therapy. Like what's wrong with you? What's going on? <laughs> well, Cindy, it's, it's really complex. And yeah. the data says that, yes, couples get into couples therapy six years too late. And the problem with that is for all those reasons you mentioned, but the bank of resentment is so high that by the time couples do go, you know, one person's already checked out or, you know, even in the, the famous Amber Heard, right, Johnny mm-hmm. Depp case, I said this in a reel, you know, they went too late. Yeah. And I know they weren't married for very long, but you already have established patterns and behaviors um, that are very complex. And this is also why the beginning of any relationship is so important. And out a personal story, I had been to some couples therapy with an ex, and it really helped me quickly figure out this is not right for me. Mm. But then when I met my husband, I said, let's go. Let's just go. Like premarital counseling, there's we didn't have any issues. But it so helped me to see like the difference that he was a real partner who was willing to work through. And the fact that he was even open to going, just that is a test. Huge. That's another great date question. If we, would you be willing to go to couples therapy with me? Mm -hmm. Because here's the tricky thing though. Sometimes individual therapy does break you up too. Mm, true. So, right. If somebody says your partner says, I'm not going to therapy. I don't have any problems. You've got the problems. You're anxious. You go. Well, now you go and you start learning about yourself and you, and, and it could be to the detriment of the couple. Yes. Cause now all of a sudden you're growing and changing and wanting things That's better right. and the other person is not. That's right. So if you're going to go to couples therapy, I would definitely recommend to go sooner, go sooner than later get in when things are pretty good. It's it's even like if you're going to have a prenup, uh, there's a book out there called Prenup for Lovers. Like talk about these things when things are good. Again, talk about when you're not in a stressful moment, talk about what you're going to need during stress. So you're building that muscle before it gets tested. Yes. Because otherwise I think that we just repeat those same patterns. If we're not able to really look and see, okay, even the breakdown of relationships, regardless of whether it was a marriage or not, you know, why didn't that work? What did I bring to the table that might've not worked so well? And how can I change that for this relationship? Because we tend to, if we don't do the work, we repeat what isn't healed. Cindy, what you said is so important, which is just personal accountability. Um, you know, I, I can tell you lots of stories. Of course, I would never identify my clients, but you know, I've worked with so many people, even, uh, recently a couple that they ended up breaking up on their own. Cause it's very hard for a couple's therapist to kind of come in and call it like, yeah. and I have though, I have, I've had to say, listen, we've been working together for years. I don't think this is working. I think you would be better off separate. And that's a hard conversation because I'm in it, right? I want to help them. I want them to improve, but you know, now I know because I got to see her in that couple and now we're working individually, which is what is she going to need to be doing differently the next time? Mm-hmm. She'd already established those patterns that 
needed to be undone. <laughs> yeah. And do you reckon, do you often work with both sides of the couple individually and then together? Is that an ideal situation? So this is mixed in the literature and some couples therapists would never do that, would never see the individuals. They only treat the couple. Having said that, what if one person is thinking is having an affair? What if one person is uh, thinking of leaving? What if one person is really scared or has their own depression or other issues? I have found in my practice to be flexible, but to talk about it with the couple. Mm-hmm. Sounds like your partner is feeling depressed, might need some individual. Would that be all right with you? Um, or, or is that going to make you feel like I'm siding more with them? Right? I mean, right. I just need to be transparent. Yes. So I'm not holding any secrets. And if somebody does come to me and say they're having an affair, then I can't hold that. Mm, that's oh, not my couples secret. therapy, right? That's right. That's not my secret to hold. So I would highly encourage them and even coach them. How do you want to bring this up? I'll be there with you, but this needs to be discussed. And I think that's really key when you are able to have those individual sessions, because there are those underlying issues that they're not comfortable bringing up just that's yet. Right. And so how do you, yes, be coached through this in terms of, we need full transparency on the table with your relationship in order for it to heal. That's right. And and if people are paying for therapy and it's like you're, you know, I'm not, what are you gaining if you're not being completely honest with me? I mean, where are we going with this, right? Yes. So, so most, most people get that and um, they do want something different. They wouldn't be there. Um, but be careful because a lot of people go to couples counseling right before they go to the divorce attorney. And that's where I'm saying, you know, yes. it's just to like check the box. Hey, we, we went to counseling, we tried, but how wholeheartedly did you try? How invested were you? How much did you change? What is the personal accountability that did you do the homework? Did you try different techniques and tools? Because it's got to be the relationship that changes, not just the person. I mean, we're, yes. we're, we're treating the relationship. Yes. And you hear time and time again, I, when individuals or even couples will come to me and I'll, and the first thing I'll ask is how much have you done to repair this relationship? Oh yeah. We've done a couple couples care, you know, counseling a couple times, but it just didn't work. And, you know, or, you know, he doesn't want to go or she doesn't want to go, or we kind of gave that up. So in order for it to work, I mean, in my opinion, I think you really need to go in hard. Like, and I mean yeah, like absolutely. six months to a year, and this has to be like a regular commitment that you mm -hmm. both need to show up to. And you can't go to therapy expecting the, to change the other person, Absolutely, you know, which I see a lot. And you can't go with the threat because if people are threatening divorce, that is again, the stressor, that's the hot water. That's going to cause somebody to feel not safe. I mean, the most important thing in dating and relationships is that does my partner make me feel safe and secure? Because unless I have safety and security, I can't breathe. I can't relax. I can't fall into this relationship. And it's very hard for one person to be vulnerable if the other person isn't mirroring that, isn't creating a context for safety. Yeah, exactly. So when you do, you know, see couples that are struggling and they're coming to you for therapy and they just, let's say they come too late. Let's say they're coming at that six year too late mark because they just haven't done it before. And now it's time because they're literally on the brink. How, what do you say to them in terms of like, is there a chance that they could bring this back? If there was, what do they need to do and what kind of, where do they go from there? 
Well, for me, it's about how responsive are they to the tools and techniques. Uh, I'll give them, you know, paraphrasing skills. Repeat, you know, when your partner says this, repeat back exactly what you heard them say. Say, did I get that right? Is there anything else? Like, can they do those basic kind of coupling skills? Um, It's not just about like go on date night. Mm -hmm. It's about how are we going to handle conflict? And are you going to work hard? If your pattern is to shut down, are you going to stay present? Um, Are you going to ask to take a a time out? And as a couple, we're going to negotiate that versus you're going to storm off and leave again. So it's really for me about how much effort they're putting into changing some things. Right. Because you really, really have to do the changing. You know, I feel like you show up to the therapy, you get a couple of skills, you try them at home, and then you just fall back into your old patterns. Like you actually need to think before you speak. And when you're in a relationship that isn't going well, or there's a lot of triggers, you always fall into those habitual reactions. And I say reactions because we're not responding because we're not thinking about it. We are just literally reacting to the same old habits all the time and nothing changes unless we change. And Cindy, that's the problem because things basically just happen so fast. And I could even be videotaping a session with a couple and I'd have to go back and replay it. And who said what, because you Mm -hmm. each saw it differently, right? So things happen very fast. I'm saying this is an hour, two hours a week. You know, what It's really, what are you doing and how committed are you to the relationship to change some things? And then people do find, and I think it is perfectly fine that if this is, if, if this is not working for you, because I will have, you know, I'll hear this in the literature, you know, women will say, well, you know, my ex wasn't diagnosed as a narcissist. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the official, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. And it might be easier to end that relationship, and heaven forbid you have children, right? You have to handle that well. So couples therapy can actually help post-divorce in terms of the management. If you figure out, you you know, we just weren't right for each other. Nobody needs to be so angry, so upset. And the moving on then is how do we best co-parent? Yes. Right? How do we... and, And then... How do I now understand myself and what were the unmet needs and how am I going to be different? Because if I'm still me, if I'm still nervous, Nora, just going from relationship to relationship, being hurt and wounded and disappointed, I'm not really doing anything different. No. And really, it's not that you're with a different partner. We all expect, oh, they're so different than my last. You're still showing up the same. So it's only a matter of time for those patterns to come out. That's right. And that's going to be when the stress shows up. But of course, from the beginning, it's going to feel different. And it should, to your point, it should feel great. And you've got the honeymoon phase and that should be lovely. And um, it's, it's really going to be, yes, how are you fundamentally acting differently? And part of that is going through those four steps I mentioned, getting your own needs met, because you really do have to do some parenting to yourself. If you keep thinking that this partner is going to be all magical and do everything for you, then you're going to be in some hurt. Yeah, definitely. I want to go back to a point that you raised about, you read my mind at that moment of narcissism, you yeah. know, considering you, you're, you're a doctor and you now it's, it's funny, you know, in, in the divorce space, it's like, oh. we all marry Prince Charming, but then we all divorce a narcissist, you know, and this term is thrown around constantly, constantly. So, you know, in your opinion, professionally, in your experience, how common is it? And what does it even look like? to even 
have narcissistic. Yeah. So true, true narcissism, textbook, DSM-5 diagnoses, it's very rare. Narcissistic personality disorder. People don't understand how like malicious narcissists really are cruel, evil people. Let's just say Putin. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like that would be a true narcissist. And that's 1% of the population, very small. But in a softer level, and here's the problem too, we don't have clinical trials that we don't have governing boards like the National Institutes of Mental Health are not really doing population studies. So we don't have true numbers. We have some general vague notion, but up to 60% of the population can have narcissistic traits. 60, so a lot I, of us do. Yeah. And I they can come have out. a little, and there's healthy narcissism. I'm self-promoting. I'm on a podcast. I'm on my Instagram page. I've got to be a little bit narcissistic to put my stuff out there, right? Sure. Yeah. But the true definition is lack of empathy and that they're not, they're really like devoid of that. And that usually comes from a parent who was very, very unavailable and gave you no feedback because Narcissus, the Greek god, was the one who fell in, uh, they fell in love with their own image and turned to stone. Mm-hmm. So that was the true narcissist and how this started. But I say, listen, sometimes they're just assholes. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say, I was married to a narcissist. I was married to an asshole. He was a douche. He didn't get it. He didn't meet my needs. But he might go on and be perfectly fine for somebody else. So does it really help you to label them as a narcissist because you chose them? Right. Right. Exactly. And now what we need all we need, we all need validation as to why it didn't work. Well, it's because, you know, he or she was this and that. And I totally agree with you in terms of narcissistic traits are in all of us. And it takes difficult times to trigger those traits, stress, trauma, crisis. But I think it's softer and uh, not to disqualify because then there are true people who have suffered narcissistic abuse. I've known yes. women who have literally ended up in the hospital and, and there are true narcissists who gaslight you, tell you that you're full of shit, that you're good for nothing, that you're a horrible person, call me names. There are people like that out there. But if your boyfriend or your husband was just kind of a low level jerk, let's not put them in that same category because true mm-hmm. people who are suffering trauma, we need to have a place for them. Yeah. And is it true? Do you think when you say, you know, if you're a true narcissist, we'll never show up in counseling anyways. So you're not even going to know. They'll maybe say, you know, check the box, but they're not really there and they can't see themselves accurately and they can't feel you. They can't get it. So, you know, they're already probably on with somebody else. There's a thing called narcissistic supply and they're needing to get more of their needs met that way. But mm-hmm. but those are the times where I'm like, yes, divorce is probably imminent. Mm-hmm. And there are books about how to divorce a narcissist, set some good boundaries and really take care of yourself because safety is of all importance. And then how are you going to parent again, co-parent with someone like that? Yeah. That's a whole nother level too. That's important to yes. go into. Yes. Yeah. Relationships are tricky, but I think it's also such a, it's such a source of joy, you know, love is amazing. And if we, when we find it, when we work on it, you know, that's when it becomes so rewarding and so, so valuable. Right. And Cindy, it's not just the finding it, it's the maintaining it. Maintaining. That's right. We call it work. I call it energy effort, you know, but, but all good relationships, you have to put some quality time, 
You have to know each other's love languages. You have to know each other's love styles. And really, if you approach it with curiosity, what can I do? What was your early experience? How can I be different? Then you're in a much more evolved place to find that. Absolutely. And I love what you do too. So as we were closing up um, our podcast episode, I mean, you have just a list of ways to help people through this. I mean, you have a love styles, couples handbook, you have course e-courses, you have dating with intention courses, you have how to get over your ex courses. Like you have so much to offer people who literally want to learn more about their relationship. So tell everyone where they can find you. So Cindy, thank you so much because my license prohibits me from seeing anybody outside of the state of California. So as a licensed psychologist, I can treat people, but only if you live in California. So all my clients, uh, I'm on Zoom, uh, but that's why I have all my online courses, because Mm -hmm. if you can't meet with me personally, take one of my online courses. I'm, you know, I'm in front of the camera talking as if we're in therapy. I have PDFs, et cetera. I talk on Instagram. I actually have a YouTube channel called Reality Therapy. I help break down some of these shows. Oh, yeah, that's right. I saw that. Uh, so I, I love it. To me, it's just about reaching a bigger audience, as I said, partly because I didn't have this information and it would have been game-changing to me if I had had it sooner. Yeah. So so people can really most finally find you at backtolovedoc.com, that's right? That's right. And over on Instagram, well, you'll see her amazing reels with herself with many wigs and costume changes, (laughs) as well as bringing her husband into the mix. So Diane. And and Cindy, what I say is also, you know, you can't, laughter is the best medicine with all of these (laughs) things sometimes. And I, and you can't take yourself too seriously um, because we do have to find a way, right? That's a way that we also join is through laughter and through humor and um, dating should be fun. It should be fun. I know it should be fun. Thank you so much. You, we could talk about this all day, but so thank you so much for being here. I am so grateful and honored that you would take time to be on my podcast. I know that everyone listening is going to gain so much from this. And um, I hope that they will reach out and know that you are the love doc. And if they're struggling, you are their go-to place to be. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Thank you for listening to Divorce Redefined, changing the experience of divorce. We hope Cindy and her guests were able to put your mind at ease and help you make the right decision for your marriage. We wish you a beautiful week.